0: You now it's weird to clap about a song about temptation in church, isn't it? But, you know, the Bible talks pretty realistically about the temptations that we all face. And in our series, Sleuth, we've been looking at how to study the Bible to come up with real, applicable, helpful advice on how to help ourselves with situations. Today, we speak about temptation. Today, we're looking at the case of the tempting trade, and we find ourselves in an area in modern Turkey known as Thyatira where Jesus wrote a personal note to a group of people living there to help them deal with temptation. And we've been teaching a process, much like Sherlock Holmes would approach a crime scene. He would observe it, he would interpret it, and then apply it. We said the same thing's true of the Bible. We find ourselves today in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, reading a personal letter that was found between Jesus and this church. It says this, To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things say the Son of God. Jesus introduces himself here as the Son of God in a very specific reason. The Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Hey, I know your works. You're doing some great things. I know your love. You're loving well. I know your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, despite the good things going in your life, you've given in to some temptations. I have a few things against you. You have allowed the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants. And it goes on and talks about a variety of things, but God wanting them to change and to turn. He's waiting for them, but they don't. But if they do, he will reward them. So like we've done before, we're going to do some observations. We're going to just look at three observations today. One, why did he choose the term son of God here in Thyatira? Of all the ways he's introduced himself to these different churches why son of god well if you remember our clash of the titans series going back to last january apollo is worshiped in thyratira now apollo if you look at our olympians here up top is zeus zeus in the greek god complex was known as the father mostly because he's a deadbeat dad and he slept around with everybody but he was known as the father and of the many children he had one was apollo one of the olympians so Apollo, who's worshipped here in Thyatira, was known as the son of God because he was a son of Zeus, the god. Well, because of that, if you came to those in Thyatira and asked who is God, who's the son of God, they'd immediately say Apollo is. And Jesus shows up and says, No, Apollo's not the son of God. I am the son of God. Apollo is not the one that brings the light and the truth and the sun into the world. I am the source, the original creator. Now, what's interesting about Apollo is that if you see photographs or sculptures of Apollo, he's almost always bringing the sun in because he was known as the god of truth, the god of light. Depending on which myth you read about Zeus and Apollo, he either is coming on a chariot across the skies carrying the sun with horses, or in many myths, uh, he actually is coming riding a swan. For whatever reason, that's the Greek myth. So in a culture that's obsessed with Apollo as the son of God and the source of truth, Jesus says, no, no, I am the source of truth. I am the real son of God. Now, for many people, they think that the Christians just copied off of the Greeks. If you remember in our series Clash of the Titans, which you can get copies of CDs out there, we addressed the fact that Jesus came to fulfill Jewish predictions made hundreds of years before the Greeks. And the Greeks had copied off of the Jews. And when Jesus came to fulfill the Jewish prophecies, he was able to say, I am not the copy that the Greeks are. So you can dig into that if you want. So the first thing we discover here is that they're living in a, in, a, in a culture that is worshiping other gods, that has found other sources of truth and other sources of worship. And Jesus said, no, I am the truth. I am the flame of fire that can burn away lies in your life. The second thing he mentions is that that his feet, Jesus says, my feet are like fine brass. Now, why does he mention this? Well, Thyatira was the Cleveland of its day. Uh, I'm not sure if that's offensive to Cleveland or to Thyatira. But it was a union town. So if you worked in Thyatira, you were part of a guild. And so part of your work was that you had to join a guild. And so there were brass workers' guilds. And here in Thyatira, they made a lot of brass. That was one of the main things that they made there. And part of being in a guild was that you did what your company did. If your company was worshiping Apollo, you did. And you would not make different decisions than your company. You could lose your job. Often the guilds would take you to the ancient equivalent of a strip club, going to different worship services with Apollo, the Greek gods. And if you decide you were going to participate in that, you could lose your job and lose your livelihood. So the guilds there in Thyatira used ancient fires or furnaces Here's a picture of a furnace that would be used in the area of Turkey during that time frame, and they would be refining brass, making brass. Now, brass and bronze are similar. One is copper plus zinc, and the other is copper plus tin. And Jesus mentions brass for a reason, because the compromises that they make here in Thyatira are very similar to the compromises made in their ancient history by King Solomon, which we'll get to that in just a moment. But if you were living in Tyre-Tyra and you wanted to make some decisions about how you were going to, for example, live a different kind of morality in the midst of a culture that was doing it a different way, it had severe consequences to your job. There's not much of ancient Tyre-Tyra left. These are some photographs I took when I was there last year. It's just a handful, almost like a park full of rubble. In the same way that this great civilization is nothing more than rubble today, If you decided to live a type of morality or faith or leadership of servanthood or caring for the poor or or being generous uh, with your money, that would be foreign to the Romans. If you decided to be sacred with your sexuality and save it from marriage, that would be foreign to the Romans. Your job would be in shambles. Nobody thought that way. That was such a unique and different way of thinking about life that your whole job was in the line. Now, let's go back to this brass again. Brass and bronze had historic meaning. Because there was a king in the Old Testament, his name was Solomon. He built the temple, the great Jewish temple of the Old Testament. The problem is he wanted to put bronze in place in the temple. He had these two bronze pillars on the left and right hand side. He named, one means God established. But he didn't have the kind of bronze workers living in Israel. So instead he hired it out. And he hired it out to some bronze workers from another country who practiced what were called the fertility gods which was like an ancient orgy. But basically, the fertility gods was when you came to worship, it was basically a sexual experience. Well, Solomon hired these guys from that kind of a worship background to come in and build the temple for God. And as we're going to see later on, the allowance of them to do this, building a temple for God, ends up setting the stage for Solomon's demise as he makes several compromises using this concept of brass and bronze, which we'll get to in a moment. So, a lot packed in here, but here brass was a way in which fire was used to refine things, just like Jesus wanted to refine them with fire. It also was a source of compromise in Israel's history as well as in Thyatira's history. Jesus goes on. Exhibit C. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have allowed a woman named Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants. Who's Jezebel, right? I mean, it's like, boy, this is so hard. Well, again, the tools we've been giving you in our journey through the Bible help discover what these words mean. One of the tools we gave you was a website called BlueLetterBible.com. So if you type in BlueLetterBible.com and you type in any passage of the Bible, in this case Revelation 2.18, right next to the word will be a tool. So, for example, next to that woman, the term that woman Jezebel, it'll tell you exactly where you can find her story. In this case, it's in second, First Kings chapter 16-17. and 17. So in First Kings 16-17, you can read about Jezebel, but I'll tell you the story. So Ahab is the king of, of uh, the nation, and he decides he'd like to marry somebody who's not necessarily got the same value system or the same god. He's heard about the gods from the other nations, specifically a woman named Jezebel. Now, she worships the fertility gods, the gods of Baal. Now, Baal would require you to throw your children into the fire when you when they were you know one two or three you didn't throw them all in the fire but you threw a lot of them in the fire so pretty detestable practice. Baal worship also involved coming to the sanctuary or to the worship service and it was an ancient orgy because part of worship was engaging with the fertility gods in worship. Well, he liked the sensuality of that, and so he, the king of Israel, marries Jezebel and she brings into Israel all of these new practices that aren't about faithfulness there aren't about purity they're more about just anything goes well Jesus is saying that the same thing that was happening in Israel's past is now happening in Thyatira in fact this is a photograph I took of a statue of Baal Baal is a bull you see his two horns on the top he's got a sword because he was always about destruction and by allowing Jezebel into his life Ahab basically lost the kingdom Jesus is applying this here to Thyatira and saying, you have allowed the same kind of Jezebel influence to come into your life. And these compromises are also going to lead to some pain. You thought, oh, I'm never going to get in trouble. I'm not going to go that far. It's not a big deal. But ultimately, that's exactly what Ahab said. That's exactly what Solomon said. So all of this is embedded in this text. Now, first thing we do is We observe. And we talked about using study Bibles and using that book, how to study your Bible and really enjoy it, how to use these books to make observations. Then we move to interpretation. All right, that's a lot of stuff for doesn't apply today. So we said, what does it mean to move from their town, a town that celebrated Apollo worship and and had guilds and and, and, and had Baal worship? What does it mean to find a principle that applied in their town, but also applies in our town? What's the universal principle? So I'll just show you how I got the principle that we're going to use to discuss today about temptation. So as I look at the text, let's pull the text back up. So I retire. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith. Nevertheless, I have these few things against you. You allow a woman named Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not. So I would say the principle that would apply to them, that would also apply to us today, would be this. You compromised and you led other people into your compromises. I gave you time to change, but you refused. And we're going to use that as the principle as we move from interpretation to application. Now, before we do that, you know, as I walk with people in their journey to faith, one of the biggest obstacles I hear people say all the time is, Christians are such hypocrites. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's just so fake. And, and we, we hear stories about how we gave up on our faith because of that priest or that pastor who had the affair or, or that person who pretended to be one thing and, and acted another way. In one sense, that's what Jesus is so concerned about. They were pretending to be about his business and his representative, but they were living a way that was very inconsistent with that. But every once in a while, and maybe you are here to rise in because you came across somebody who was different. The way they parented was different. The way they lived there was different. The peace they had. The, they weren't compromising. They were trying to faithfully live out this faith that was drawing you closer to it. And there's something attractive about somebody who doesn't compromise or somebody who admits quickly when they do compromise and gets back on track. I'd like you to hear the story of, of sleep who's had a Christian in his life named Joe, who's lived a life that's been so consistent and authentic, he's been drawn to get to know a God who's teaching him how to live. Let's watch.
1: One of the things that stands out in my relationship with Joe is just the way that he he lived his life. I've never met somebody who was more gentle and humble and yet still had this strength about him and this uh, presence about him. Uh, that showed confidence in, in in who God was and confidence in himself and in, in a very uh, humble way. So I think Joe really displayed just what it meant to kind of like be like Christ. I still to this day I'm like, man, Joe's one of the most Christ-like people that I know. And one of the ways that he really imparted that to me was he always listened, right? So one of the things is that Joe is very slow to speak uh, and quick to listen, right? And so. Uh, whenever, whenever a subject came up, one of the things I learned about Joe was that was the whole idea of of really listening. And one of the things that Jesus did really well as I read scripture was he asked a lot of questions, and Joe would ask a lot of questions to get to the root of things. And he was very even keeled. I, I just watched a lot of his life, the way that he would react to different situations at work, whether it was a crisis, he'd always be calm and even keeled. So I asked him, Joe, how do you react that way? Like, what are you like? What are you thinking? Like, and so. And he would always uh, be open with me. But there was also a joy, you know, something that really uh, uh, characterized Joe is there was a joy. Like, oh, you must really know. You're all happy all the time. <laughs> Even in difficult situations, there was a joy about him that, that really, really radiated. And, and there was a wisdom about the way that he conducted things. And so he would lead me to Proverbs. And, you know, Joe would spend, you know, an hour of his day praying with me if I needed to. Or I could call him at any time. And so he really just displayed Christ's heart. A lot of his time was um, answering questions. A lot of his time was just being there and then being an example of Christ in front of me and uh, being available to pray and, uh, and really affirming me as well in different giftings and different things that God has called me to. And he'd always entertain them and he'd always listen and he'd always kind of redirect and he'd take me through the process of all right, once you take that, once you go and pray think about it, take it through this process, and bring it back. So he took the time to teach, um, not just in what he said, but what he made me do.
0: I think what's a shame is that, I know for me, many people don't end up engaging with the message of the Bible or Jesus because they've been so turned off by somebody who wasn't sincere or authentic about it. Every once in a while you stumble across somebody like Joe and you're like, I want to know more about that. So I guess the question I have for all of us is, why isn't there more consistency in my life? Why isn't there more consistency in those who claim to follow Christ? Why are scandals and betrayal and affairs and broken relationships with children and broken marriages or blindness to compromises, why is that just so prevalent? The case of the tempting trade is this. Compromise in all of our lives happens one lie at a time compromise always occurs the same way. It occurs one lie at a time. So we're going to look at the four lies of compromise that happened at Tyra, in hopes that you and I can avoid a lot of pain. <laughs> because there's a lot of pain at the end of the road of compromise. And, and I'd like to save you some pain. Better than that, not only avoiding the pain, I'd like to teach you how that by Avoiding these compromises, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of connection between you and God, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of sense that, that you are, are walking in his favor that we don't want to miss out on, that we don't have to come to a place where we say, oh, I would do anything to go back and undo this. I'm so glad I avoided that pain in my life. Compromise number one, we allow good reasons to, com- to trump good reason. You know, good reason says don't go there. Good reason says don't try that. Good reason says don't go that far. That's good reason. But we've got good reasons why we're allowing it just this once, just this time, just in this area. That's what Jesus says to them. He goes, you have allowed... The first lie is that you've said, well, you know what, you're living in Tyra, everybody's worshiping Apollo, my, my work worships Apollo, part of going to Apollo is part of the strip club scene, I, I'd lose my job if I didn't do it, I'm going to have to make some allowances, I've got some good reasons why I have to allow this. But the first stage toward compromise is that we allow things. As we mentioned last uh, two weeks ago, stumbling blocks. Sometimes we allow a habit and it just starts growing. Some of us allow a relationship, and it begins to get some emotional connections that good reason says, oh, you need to back off of this. But the good reasons, oh, come on, trump good reasons. We allow a habit that continues to grow, a substance, a lack of connection in our marriage. Well, there's some reasons why at this season, what's because of his job, what's because of where the kids are in the age of the kids, and we allow that lack of connection to go on. And we wonder why we're growing apart. We allow a, a lack of connection with our kids. Well, they're so busy these days, they don't want to talk for it very much. And we allow that lack of connection to set us up to miss out. And we wonder why two or three years later we're not having the connection that, that we wanted. Are you allowing some things? You got some good reasons why you're allowing it? Yeah, I know I do. And it's those allowances that set me up for pain later. It's that lie. My good reasons trump the good reason. I was talking to a buddy a couple years ago. He said, Chad, that's exactly what happened to me. As I worked my way up through the company, I got higher and higher up. And as you get higher and higher up, more and more important, more and more responsibility. And as I got higher up in the organization, I had less accountability, less people speaking honestly to me. And all day long I heard how great I was doing for the company and the results I was doing. And I'd come home and I didn't feel appreciated by my wife. I didn't feel very cared for by my family. didn't feel very respected. And so I began to tell myself, since I'm such a good person, since I'm working so hard, I deserve better. And I gave myself permission to start hanging out with a woman. And I gave myself permission to go out to dinner with her because my wife is too busy with the kids. And I gave myself permission to share with her because my wife wasn't a very good listener. And, and all those allowances led to an affair. And the whole time, I used how good a person I was to make allowances for the compromise I was making. So, wow, that's fascinating. How it was actually your good actions that gave the reasons for your bad actions. Now, this, is, this idea of allowing certain things was actually part of Israel's history. Because again, he mentions brass here. And brass and bronze had a very significant uh, historical background in Israel. As I mentioned before, King Solomon had built the, the temple for God out of bronze. But he didn't have the bronze workers that he needed to have the quality of the bronze work. So instead of saying, well, then maybe I shouldn't just do that quality of bronze work, he said, no, God deserves it, so I'm going to allow myself permission to bring some other people in from some fertility gods, from other nations and other gods to build this thing. So here's what happens if you read in the book of 1 Kings. And look at the three stages, how he allows, what happens next, and where he ends up. It begins that King Solomon sent and brought Huram, a bronze worker from a different nation, different God, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill. He was good at it. He was a great bronze worker. He's good at working with all kinds of bronze work, so he came to King Solomon and did all his work. However, he brought with him these fertility gods that had a view of sexuality and intimacy that said, sort of share yourself with anybody and everybody. Well, at the end of them building these bronze connections or, or, or pillars for the temple, it's time for Solomon to pay them. So instead of just paying them gold and saying, hey, go back to your own country, he instead, look what he does, King Solomon gave Hurom 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Now, Jesus hang on in the, ga- the, the land of Galilee. So he now, all these guild workers during his time, who had a different practice of, of generosity, a different practice of God, a different practice of sexuality, are now living in Galilee. And they brought with them all these compromises, all these different views. But now they're living in Solomon's land. And just two chapters later, we find out that King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, he's now become a polygamist, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, hey, be careful that you get involved with them or they'll turn your hearts away from God. You see what happened? He said, well, I need good bronze workers. So he allows some things. And then he says, well, as long as you worked here, I might as well let you live here with us. So he allows those compromises to begin to dwell with him. And next thing you know, he finds himself having a totally different view of what's right and wrong. Isn't that what happens in all of our lives? We make an allowance. We then allow it to live with us. Then we find ourselves doing things we said we would never do. That's lie number one. And I think that's why Jesus shows up in this lie and says, you need somebody to speak truth into your life, to come against that lie. Apollo is not the son of God who's going to help you. Or Jesus said, Apollo claimed to be the source of truth. Jesus says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, and if you invite me into your life, wherever you are, whatever compromises you're making, I will be the truth, but my f- truth will set you free. Which I think is why he says here, these things says the Son of God. Apollo's not the Son of God that's going to bring freedom. Look at your life, look at your relationships. You're not freer. I am the Son of God. And the flame I have is going to burn away the lies in your life to bring real freedom. My way brings freedom into your life. That's lie number one. The second lie, he goes on to say, is that the second lie to compromise is that we choose fantasy over reality. He says, you have allowed Jezebel. And, and notice, she pretends to be something she's not. Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. I mean, the reason I give in to temptation is I've never had temptation come to me and say, I am about to destroy your life. I'd be like, well, I'm getting away from that. Temptation always comes and says, try you'll like it just once it won't hurt anybody i think that's the second lie that we get into is that we choose fantasy she's a prophetess over reality she's an adulteress it's interesting this book triangles by uh, lana saheli she begins to do research on what leads to an affair and she said almost always in leading to an affair is what happens is you get into a relationship and you begin to compare the fantasy of your affair. Oh my goodness, we never fight. Oh my goodness, we never talk about money or kids. We just have so much fun and chemistry together. So you compare the fantasy of an affair with the reality of a real relationship. What is reality can never live up to fantasy. And yet she says the reality is that many people will tell themselves, oh, we're going to fall in love and we're going to be connected. Things are going to be great. And the divorce rate amongst People and their mistress or mistresses is a 90% divorce rate. So the reality is there's no way it's going to work out. It's impossible. You're not even dealing with reality. And yet the whole time you begin to say, well, I choose the fantasy over the reality as we go through this. I remember having a conversation a couple of years ago. A guy sat down with me. He said, Chad, can I ask your advice? I said, well, sure. Or at least I can listen. He said, I just I really feel like God is leading me to start a relationship with someone. I said, oh, tell me about that. He said, well, I'm married now. It's a bad intro, by the way. Um, he said, but the things in our marriage aren't going well, and I know God would want me to be happy, and, and she's not happy either. And, and I met one of her friends, and we're really hitting it off. And I just feel like this is the person God has for me. And as we're, we're starting this relationship, um, this friend is, is really having some problems. Like, she, she likes me, we have good chemistry, but she's just wondering if I'm trustworthy. But again, totally blind to it, right? Because this is what happens when you're in it—you're blind to that because you're so in love with the fantasy. And he says, "Do you have any advice?" I said, "Would you want me just to listen, or do you want advice?" Because I like advice. I said, "We don't know each other real well. Are you sure you want advice?" He said, "I really want advice." I said, "You need to go and break this off immediately. This is not God's plan for you. This is not God's desire for you. And of course, you're going to have issues. You're building a whole relationship on, on deception, not on trust and faithfulness." And to his credit, he went and actually apologized and broke it off and came back and made those decisions. And, and, and he was able to confront the lie, which is, I'm choosing fantasy over reality. It's hard to do, not just in this area, but in all areas. We like to believe the lies. The third lie is that. We, the third lie is we believe intentions determine destinations. Notice it says that you've allowed this woman who, who claims to be a prophetess, she says, oh, I'm from God, But she's actually a Jezebel. You've allowed her to teach you and to seduce you. Instead of saying to temptation, whoa, that's wrong. I'm not going there. You've allowed her to teach and seduce you. Now, here's why I say the lie is intentions determine destinations. You've seen this in your kids. You've seen this in your friends. It goes like this. Somebody's walking down a path toward a certain destination. Destination. And you can see it. It's a financial problem. They're overspending. And you say, oh, this isn't going to end well. They're walking down a path and beginning to get into a relationship. You're saying, oh, that that looks like it's heading toward an affair. And the whole time you're trying to warn your son, your daughter, your friend about this, here's what they say. Don't worry about it. I wouldn't let that happen. I would never go there. I won't go that far. I don't intend to do that. I don't intend to be bankrupt. I don't intend to break up my marriage. I don't intend to hurt anybody. Right? Now, they're walking down a path toward destruction. But the whole time they're saying, oh, don't worry. I don't intend to go there. Right? And you're like, it doesn't matter if your intentions are irrelevant. That path leads there. Right? But this is the lie. We tell ourselves while we're walking toward financial ruin or spiritual ruin or or relational ruin that we don't intend to be there. And so that's magically going to work. The word that's used here is very interesting. Jezebel says you're allowing Jezebel, your temptation, to teach and seduce you. The word seduce, seduce literally means to be led somewhere. In other words, you're on a path that's leading you somewhere. And you're trying to tell yourself the whole time that it's not going to go someplace, but it will. See, so you've got to come against that lie. If you neglect a marriage or you neglect a relationship with a son or daughter, don't be surprised if you get led to a place where you're estranged. That's just where it leads, whether you intend to or not. I remember when I lived in Smyrna, Georgia, I had a house and we had a lot of so we mowed the backyard up until that back strip. It's like, ah, oh, don't worry about the back strip. So like it got weedier and weedier. And my kids used to love playing in the sandbox. But after a couple of years, they didn't play in the sandbox anymore. And so the wind came by and it blew. We had a turtle sandbox. So the, the back of the turtle blew into the back end of the rubbish. And I'm like, ah, oh, who wants to go out there and fix that? So uh, four months went by, five months went by. And I'm like, you know what? I f- this, the weeds are getting really, really tall. I better finally mow that down. So I'm, I'm not sure how long the. The sandbox top had been over this area of the backyard. It either been nine months or a year and nine months. I just know I neglected it for a while. So I go back there and I grab the uh, the turtle top that's on the ground and I, with one hand, flip it over. And as I do, there is a hole hornet's nest there. That is four foot by three foot. This is me. This is a big one like it. This is what I saw in the ground. Four foot by three foot hornet's nest. And you better believe it. when I knocked the top off, they were alive and well. It went from no noise to I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm pulling out all the stuff. I'm getting out like a hose to spray them down. I'm grabbing like uh, the, the hairspray and, the, and, the, and the, the match. I don't recommend this, by the way. And the reason I don't recommend this is because bees fly and wasps fly in, in erratic patterns. I mean, I do not recommend this. And all of a sudden, this little area in the back of my life I neglected unleashed this level of destruction and pain. that Put my whole family at risk. Put my whole yard at risk. And that's what happens, is that we don't intend to do that. We just neglected that area. I just sort of drifted my way away from God because I haven't been to church in 20 years. I just sort of drifted away from my marriage because I neglected it for so long. I didn't build into it for so long. I allowed myself not to take my thoughts captive when I was given into temptation. I allowed myself to fantasize a bit and to let those thoughts play out. And all of a sudden, we got a beehive. Of compromise. And the whole time we lied and said it's not going to hurt anybody, it's just me, and next thing we know there's bees swarming everybody we care about. But the whole time we said, Oh, I'm not going anywhere. Now, listen, that horizon you can believe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. God gives freedom. But I just think this is probably because he mentioned sexual immorality, let me tell you specifically why Christians are pro faithfulness. i think that's silly, but let me tell you why. You may not come to this conclusion. That's fine. You may not think the idea of saving sex for marriage is even doable. You might think it's an archaic idea. But if you're trying to explain it to your kids or why the Bible thinks this is a good idea, let me just give you a few reasons why. God says that He is faithful to us. Now, what does that mean? That means He doesn't cheat around on us. He chooses us. More than that, God commits to us. He says, "I'm committed to you." The first thing He does say, "I'm committed." And so commitment is the relationship by which God comes to us. And God says, so in our relationships, he wants us to lead with commitment. More than that, God is a God of purity. And so when we pursue purity, it's a way of reflecting who God is. Three, trust. I mean, imagine whether you decide to do it or not. or Imagine the trust in a marriage of a couple. Who doesn't have to wonder if one person's, you know, thinking about having an affair, saying, well, not only is he not sleeping around on me, we didn't have sex until we are married because of trust. He so wanted to protect that, or she so wanted to protect it, it builds such a great foundation of trust that flows into your marriage later on. I'll give you another reason. Sure, there's things about sexually transmitted disease and all the bad stuff. I'm talking about the good stuff. Trustworthiness. Power. Faithfulness, purity. There's a stickiness factor that, that God created sexual intimacy to bond two people together. I remember when I was, well, I was a teenager. I had a guy who was in his 30s, and uh, he was sharing with us in Sunday school class one day why he had chosen to be faithful until marriage and, and save sex for marriage. And, and we said, "Why are you doing that?" In fact, he went on a mission trip and came face to face with a. Uh, uh, a prostitute that they were sharing the Bible with, and the prostitute's like, well, you're a virgin? Wow! It's like finding a unicorn. I didn't know there was such a thing." And uh, and she says, yeah, you want a freebie?" And I remember he told us the story, and he said, uh, "He said no. He said I want to be faithful to my wife." And she goes, "Oh, I didn't realize you were married." So even she recognized faithfulness. He says, "I'm not married, but I think God has chosen somebody for me, and, and I do want to be faithful to the person I don't know yet." Now, isn't that beautiful? Even if you don't choose to do that, isn't that a beautiful idea? And so when you choose to, to sleep with somebody who you haven't committed to, you're sleeping with somebody else's wife or somebody else's husband. And the reasons Christians save themselves from marriage is because we think that sex is so important, it's so powerful, it's so sacred, that you want to be generous with your body to the one person God's chosen for you. Those are just some of the reasons. Now, again, you might say, well, I'm not going to believe that, and that's great for the kids, but not for me. <laughs> that's fine. But I'm telling you, there's a beauty to it. It's not that Christians are against something, we're for something. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I want you to be as faithful to your spouses as I am faithful to you. That's the beauty of it. I got a chance to do a wedding about a month ago. Uh, a friend of mine that I play uh, volleyball with for the last seven years, his name's Mark. And I've walked with him through a very difficult time, um, just conversations and lunches as, they've, as he went through a divorce several years ago. And really did the hard work of going into counseling, figuring out what role he played in, in causing the divorce and, or, and things he needed to work on himself. So he asked me, you know, he's been dating this woman for the last uh, couple years and asked me if I would do the wedding. He said, by the way, Chad, I know you're a balloon artist. Would you do a balloon animal wedding? I said, there's no way your wife is going to let me do a balloon. I've never even done I don't even know what that would look like. He said, will you try it? I said, all right. So I did. And they actually liked it. So I, I blew up a red balloon and I said, God made women unique. And I blew up a blue balloon. I said, God made men unique. And yet when you put the two together, and I, I put them together like a, a braid, I said, it's a one flesh relationship. You're connected body, soul, and spirit with someone. And that's the uniqueness of marriage that God has, this uniqueness of of becoming one flesh or oneness. Then I blew up a yellow balloon, and I said, and when you put God in the middle of that, you have access to his faithfulness and his compassion. So when you run out of compassion for your spouse, you tap into his. And it becomes a threefold strand that's not easily broken. And then I turned it into a rainbow, and I talked about how when we give a ring... It's a token of our commitments or vows to each other. And God gave a token, a rainbow, of his vow or his commitment to Noah. And then I turned it into an actual ring and he put it on his head just afterwards for fun. And as I was talking to Mark just a few weeks before the ceremony, I said, Hey, you're in your mid-30s, second marriage. You're telling me you're committed to faithfulness and committed to saving sex for marriage? Nobody does that in this culture anymore. And so I asked him this week if he'd give me permission so he and, and his wife talked about it and said they would. I said, it's just so unique. And yet I come across more and more folks who are coming alive with the vision of saying it's not about what you don't do. It's about just aiming toward or moving towards something better. And wherever you are, whatever compromise you have made or going to make, God takes you right where you are and just says, come on, it's better over here. And whether you're being stingy in your marriage or whether you're being selfish in your marriage in this area, God says, wherever you are, come on, let's move toward this idea of look how generous I am to you and be generous and prioritize intimacy in your life. Wherever you are, it's not guilt and condemnation. It's, it's, let me tell you how much better it could be. And it's grace for mistakes we've made. I love that idea, which goes to our last lie. It's in the text. I think one of the lies is that we say, well, I haven't done that. I never will do that. I don't even like that idea. The fourth lie is that we think that compromise in any area is a reason to run from God instead of to God. We make mistakes. We've got secrets. We've got problems. And that becomes the lie of oh, God's got to be mad at me. God's got to be kicked off at me. God's got to be disappointed in me. And so when we compromise, we run away from God. And then we feel more and more distance from God. We form more, more and more disconnected from God. Because the lie is, when you compromise, you better run from God because he's mad. Instead of, hey, I've compromised. I need to run to God. I need help. I can't control my own appetites. I need help. I just really screwed up financially. I need help. I really bought into a lie. God, I need your wisdom. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need your help. And here's the great news. Look what it says in this, this letter to Thyatira. Tyra. I gave her time to repent, to, to, which means to change your thinking. Oh my goodness, I was believing in the fantasy. I need some reality. I was telling myself intentions were good. No, I need to look at the destinations. God says, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm giving you time. Because when you compromise, I want to tell you something. I love you enough to warn you. Oh, that's not good. I love you enough to warn you, but I also love you enough to welcome you, no matter what you've done. And more than that, I love you enough to wait for you. Okay, I guess it doesn't hurt bad enough yet. Oh, oh. Can, can I help now? Not yet. Oh, 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 and God just waits. Oh, and He welcomes. He warns. Don't you? And at some point, we go, "Wow, that hurts so bad." Instead of compromising being a, a reason to run from God, we go, "I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for Your help." And for many of us, maybe that's the lies. We just don't know about a God who has such mercy and grace and love that he would welcome people who have made compromises in any area of their life. You see, we compromise one lie at a time. So this week, I want to challenge you to look out for one of your lies and just watch for it each week. For this week, every day, I want you to just begin to look for what's the lie that's sneaking in. i invite the band to come up as we reflect on these four. As I've been talking, maybe there's an area where you say, Wow, a good reason says I shouldn't be doing this or going there or continuing this habit or this relationship or this tendency. That's a good reason. But yet I really have allowed some good good reasons to convince me to keep pretending that this really isn't dangerous. And I want to encourage you this week to look out for that lie and to come against it, to let the truth of God begin to burn that away. Or maybe you've chosen fantasy over reality whether it's a a get-rich-quick scheme or a i'm going to pray my way out of things i behave my way into i see that a lot you're choosing the fantasy over the reality of doing the hard work of dealing with your own junk or maybe it's the third one here you you've you've told yourself i don't intend to get hurt i don't tend to hurt anybody else i don't tend to go that far and yet you're finding yourself deeper and deeper into that habit, deeper and deeper into that substance, deeper and deeper into that situation. Or maybe the last one is this one. You know, it, it's too late for me. I've gone too far. i got too many secrets If people found out. Oh my goodness, what it would do. I cannot go anywhere. There's no safe place. God says, I set the example the reason the bible is what it is is god says i came to people and they all rebel and they all compromise and they all screw up so i came and died on the cross to show my faithfulness to them so that my hands would be open wide to compromisers open wide to the broken open wide to those who aren't living the life they're supposed to live and when you let me come into your life. I can begin to give you the willpower you need, the self-control you need, the love you need, the, the, the strength you need. But you need my example to do it. I remember right after Richard Nixon and the whole scandal, they asked uh, President Ford how he was going to handle this kind of thing. How was he going to fix these, these ethical problems? And I love this quote. Gerald Fold said this. He said, here's how I'm going to deal with it. The code of ethics will be the example I set my problem is I can't live up to my own code that sounds nice I need somebody who's got a higher code than me who fulfilled it who can help me out Jesus is the ultimate one who pardons us out of our scandals he's the ultimate one who doesn't just do that he comes and lives in us and says I am the example of what it means to resist temptation I am the one who can give you what you need So during this next song, I love this song, because it's a song of reflection. We come in here today and we look pretty. We look like we got our our, our life in line and our families in line and our marriages in line. But underneath that often is some pretense. We're pretending to be better than we are. We're pretending to be more moral than we are. And this next song is a challenge to say, where are you compromising? And maybe today's the day. To stop pretending. I just want to say those words from the song. I'm God I'm tired of pretending. I need help. I need forgiveness. Like I need wisdom. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me even when you know my secrets. God, lead me to make the next right but tough decision. Ask the fire of your truth to burn away the lies leading me down a path I shouldn't go. Deliver me from shame and guilt. I want to run to you in situations like this. So we just thank you for being such a good God. We thank you for working with broken people compromising people pretending people we're just so thankful the church isn't a place to come and pretend to be something you're not It's it's a place that we can be real even when that's not pretty and that you will work with us right where we are because you're so kind and you're so gracious that you are faithful even when we're faithless you're honorable even when we're dishonorable but God you love us enough to warn us to welcome us but to wait for us to return we thank you for our time this morning, Father, and just ask you to just continue to work in identifying lies in our life and delivering us to truth and freedom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today. And as we continue our journey in Sleuth next week, if you came prepared to give us some offering boxes on the way out, we've got two more weeks in our journey. It um, uh, won't be as heavy as this one. So we're going to get happy, happy, happy next week, I promise. Uh, and we're going to have a chance to really look at how our work can be an act of worship and how you bring meaning and purpose into your work as we look next week. Thanks again. We'll see you next week for Sleuth.